Welcome to the next in the Editor's Choice podcast. We are pleased to welcome Reed DeLacy, an assistant professor of neurosurgery at the, the Department of Neurosurgery at Mount Sinai Hospital. Reed is the primary author on the Editor's Choice article, which will appear in the January print issue of the JNIS and currently appears on our website. The manuscript is neck bifurcation aneurysms of the middle cerebral artery and basilar apex treated by endovascular techniques, a multi-center core lab adjudicated study evaluating safety and durability of occlusion, also known as branch. Welcome, Reed, and thanks uh, also for your great work as an um, assistant editor on our social media team. Thanks, Philippe. Very happy to be here and also very happy to be working with JNIS. Basically, wanted to start out by asking you to provide a brief synopsis of the study uh, and its results, and also if you could specifically address um, how you conceived of the trial and why you selected uh, these two particular aneurysm subgroups. Um, I guess probably the the way to approach it first is why we why we decided to design this kind of trial, uh, and then move on to some of the results afterwards. But basically, you know, through our practice and through our network, we're involved in the conduction of many different trials and evaluation of different devices and results for for treatment of aneurysms. And it came to our understanding that for all these new devices that we're trialing, there's a Although there is a huge amount of data that exists on aneurysm treatment as far as outcomes, both clinical and angiographic, a lot of it is, if not all of it, at least for this kind of aneurysm subgroup, was not impartially assessed as far as the angiographic outcomes. And as this, you know, as, as, as all of us in the field know, there is a generalized tendency for us to be favorable upon ourselves in as far as our angiographic results. Where it becomes really critical is when we're looking at new devices and devices designed to treat tricky or aneurysms or diseases that are um, not routine, I guess, then we really need to be comparing any new device that comes out to an impartial and objective yardstick. So we decided that uh, it'd be very useful for the, the neurointerventional community at large for us to try and design a trial that involved many different sites geographically uh, diverse amongst the United States, looking at aneurysms specifically in this uh, this location, basilotip and MCA that are wide neck by criteria, and their outcomes over, uh, sorry, their outcomes from endovascular treatment. And in doing that, have those outcomes assessed by a cord lab so that the angiographic results were as impartial as we could possibly make them within the, re within the resources that we have. So what we did, we approached 10 different sites around the United States um, and we asked if they would be willing to provide uh, angiographic and clinical data on up to 15 consecutive patients that fit the inclusion criteria, so MCA um, or basal bifurcation, wide neck by criteria, um, treated with endovascular surgery from the beginning of when they were accruing data up until when we enrolled them in the trial. Um, the, the sites were, were very agreeable and they were wonderful in getting their data in a timely fashion. So we managed to compile a reasonable volume, so 115 aneurysms between the 15 sites. The breakdown was roughly 69 aneurysms were basilar tip and 46 were MCA bifurcation. And uh, the techniques for treating them was also fairly broad. And I guess it, it follows 
the standard kind of practice that we'd see endovascularly in the United States, as opposed to, I guess, other portions of the world. But standalone coiling was performed in 37, balloon assistance in eight, and stent-assisted coiling in 70. And importantly, when we're looking at the results of these, every aneurysm was unruptured. There were no ruptured or previously ruptured aneurysms, and there were no retreatments. So our outcomes that, that we identified, I guess, was broken into two, two arms. Um, one was to look at the angiographic and clinical outcomes, importantly, because that was a, a prime tenet of the study. And the second was to compare the self-reported outcomes uh, for these angiographic follow-ups by the physicians performing the treatment to a core lab that we, we set up. Um, so the occlusion rates, so Raymoroy class one and two, where you consider an aneurysm to be the secure angiographically, was about 62 or 63% at follow-up. And the mean time of angiographic follow-up was close to a year, about 50 weeks. Um, the self-reported uh, outcomes, however, showed, again, a fairly predictable, but it's, it's, it's important that this is highlighted in the literature, a direction towards angiographic Raymond-Roy outcomes at follow-up by self-reporting when you compare to the core lab and the odds ratio was 1.75 and that was statistically significant. So, you know, if you're reporting, self-reported outcomes were, you know, 1.75 times more likely to be considered Raymond Roy one when you compared them to the core lab, which is, you know, it's a pretty important kind of number to highlight when we're looking at outcomes for these kind of devices. <laughs> Certainly, um, and the heterogeneity of the uh, of the different treatment modalities you you touched on that a bit, Breed. How do you think that that uh, impacted this study? Did you see any patterns where where MCA aneurysms treated preferentially with stent support or balloon support, or um, vice versa for the basilars? Yeah, there wasn't really a trend towards stent or standalone between the basilars or the MCAs. Again, considering that the numbers are 115 and this is relatively small in the grand scheme of things, maybe that would have borne out with higher numbers. And that is, you know, and, and again, the technique and the types of devices being used, again, with higher numbers, maybe there'd be a statistically significant change in one direction or another. But again, that's that was beyond the scope of the volume of this study. I will say that all the devices that were used, um, and one of the inclusion criteria that any any device, be it catheter, coil, balloon, or stent, had to be FDA approved at the time of, of submitting the data. So all the, these other devices that are coming to pass that would have been under trial, ID trials or HD trials at that time, were not allowed to be included. Okay. So um, not surprisingly, there was, as you mentioned, a greater propensity for um, the Roy Raymond score to be closer to one uh, with self-reporting through uh, then, uh, in comparison to the core lab, interventionalists um, interpret studies that are that, that are self adjudicated. Um, you and I talked about this a bit a, a bit earlier. Um, should these larger case series now, all of them, uh, be subject to uh, core lab uh, adjudication? Um, it, it seems like that is uh, the trend that we're seeing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in short, yes. You know, if if self-reported outcome trials and papers, I think, are very important. They obviously fill a large portion of, of data throughout the literature in various journals, and it provides a lot of information about safety outcomes. But as far as things like imaging outcomes, we really should be striving as a specialty to be as accurate as possible. 
Because the kicker to that for for all these devices that are being designed and evaluated and used and put to to regulatory bodies, the regulatory bodies in turn, you know, turn their attention to the the general populace of data to decide what the yardstick should be for these new devices to be coming out. It's important that that kind of yardstick is as accurate as possible. And it really comes down to, you know, the data being published being of as high quality as possible. Can you talk a little bit about the core lab in your particular study? Uh, I noticed it, it was one person that uh, that constituted the core lab. Uh, was that a drawback? Was that uh, intentional? Or And comment uh, on whether or not a core lab should be a, a larger group of individuals. Yes, yeah, certainly. So that was a that was a, a question that we posed to ourselves at the time of trial design, and a lot of this somewhat comes down to allocation of resources and funding ability. We we thought about having more than one uh, independent physician as core lab, but it wasn't within the purview of the study for us to be able to fund that. And additionally, there isn't a huge amount of data or data that I was aware of or the other authors that were aware of stating exactly what is the ideal number of core lab adjudicators is two better than one, three better than two. And, you know, things like what are their background? What is the the adequate amount of experience that, that one or many of them need to be as accurate as possible? So understanding that we were trying to stay within standard of care, which we think that this still fits, or standard of, of research care. Um, we decided to come down onto the point of trying to make sure that the core lab was experienced in case volume and clinical and angiographic evaluation abilities. But uh, we stopped short of increasing the core lab beyond that. Yeah, certainly those are, are valid concerns. Um, yeah, I, I found this, uh, this article interesting and, and your conclusions uh, were um, certainly not a, a glowing endorsement for the use of endovascular uh, techniques to treat this subgroup of aneurysms. I think your words exactly was that your study found, quote, modest, complete occlusion rates and, and durability uh, of follow-up. What is the next step then towards um, saying that perhaps we shouldn't be treating aneurysms in this location if these are the results that we're getting? The, the population of aneurysms that we had was obviously tilted towards basilar apex aneurysms, which I think all of us understand are historically difficult to manage and, and cure both either surgically or endovascularly, but the safety profile is probably favoring endovascular treatment of those aneurysms. So that, that I think adds to the mix of the angiographic outcome. I don't think that we should be swinging away as a reflex from treating these aneurysms endovascularly. I think that that they're, you know, they are inherently difficult and there is room for improvement both in in device and technique. But uh, I think it, it gives us a bit of pause and time to reflect on on where the specialty is in the United States and where the gaps are for new devices that come along to try and treat these aneurysms. Yeah. I agree. I, I think it, it really speaks to the fact that we have to look uh, very critically at, at our results and, and look quite critically at, at the new technology that we're employing. So your manuscript really did kind of close with a challenge to industry specifically that we need new novel devices to, to treat these challenging lesions. Uh, can you discuss 
some of the uh, current products and, and technology that you foresee in the future that, that may help in particular types of aneurysms? Yeah, I mean, I think the specific devices and brands aside, there are a few things that interventional devices and products really have to satisfy to become mainstream. So they have to be easy to train on and easy to, to use. It shouldn't be a kind of device that only a, a subsection of physicians in the United States or the world have the skills to be able to use safely and, and manage. Um, and it should be affordable and it should be effective in that it achieves um, angiographic occlusion rates that are better than the current, current standard that we have um, with reasonable, if not improved, complication rates and potentially less requirement for concomitant medication such as you know, anti-aggregates and such things. Um, you know, so and other things that we look into, which we're only really starting to get a bit of a taste for in the United States, like intrasacular devices and neck bridging devices with web and pulse rider. And then experience, I guess, from colleagues overseas in Europe and Australia and such things, looking at, I guess, um, different off-label indications for things like flow diversion of these lesions, which obviously I have no experience in and can't really speak to the data. So the future, I think, is 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 bright in as far as its options, but any any one of the devices that we're using that becomes standard of care and mainstream really has to satisfy those those key criteria of, you know, trainability, ease of use, uh, safety, and at the end of the day, practicality and price. Sure. Yeah, certainly. Ease of use I, is one of my favorite uh, favorite terms that I use with our fellows uh, discussing endovascular techniques that really does have to be something that is straightforward, reproducible, uh, and safe. So to close on that note, actually, Breed, I'm curious uh, a bit about how you, you teach your fellows who are interested in pursuing an academic career. I certainly, when I started, um, I really built my career on the publication of case series that were self-adjudicated case reports. And, but that really has changed. That playing field has changed. Those kinds of studies are difficult to get into journals nowadays. Uh, you and I both know, being on, on our editorial board, that, that we are looking for you know, randomized controlled trials, prospective trials, discussion of novel devices, things like that. So the case series really is kind of uh, uh, becoming a dinosaur, especially the self-adjudicated ones. I'm curious how you um, inspire your fellows who want to pursue an academic career as to how they should go about um, you know, pursuing their research, what kind of research they should pursue, and what kind of papers they should try to write uh, going forward in, in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a really good point uh, as to the changing kind of landscape within your intervention as to the level of DBM that has to be achieved to get papers published in, in specific journals these days. You know, I think it comes down a, a lot to mentorship and the various the various kind of specialties and backgrounds that come in programs but as far as as my my practice and my practice groups involved are considered we try and and i guess identify a specific area of neurosurgery neurointervention neuroradiology that kind of stuff that you know strongly appeals to their future career direction and then try and put them in touch with a network of people throughout the field that we've come through 
you know, common contact through throughout our travels and our research to try and help set up a bit of a, a consortium of people that have similar interests in designing trials and running trials that can also overcome the issues of lack of core lab and the problems of self-adjudication by, by, I guess, setting up a system where a core lab is just part of the consortium and it doesn't have to be funded. There's no exchange of, of finances to make that come about because, you know, a core lab doesn't have to be a funded company that that is, you know, unaffiliated to a hospital. A core lab just has to be a physician with experience or a number of physicians with reasonable experience who have no no association with the outcomes of the data in the trial that are blinded to to the data that's being delivered to provide an impartial evaluation on things that may be subject to bias that we can modify so things like imaging outcomes well thank you Reed. that was uh, that was an interesting discussion um, and I want to congratulate you again on uh, will be published in the January print issue of the JNIS and is currently online. Uh, the manuscript is entitled Wide Neck Bifurcation Aneurysms of the Middle Cerebral Artery and Basilar Apex Treated by Endovascular Techniques, a multicenter core lab adjudicated study evaluating safety and durability of occlusion, also known as the Branch Study, authored by Reed DeLacy and others. Thanks again, Reed. Uh, have a great day. Thanks, Philippe.